from the Canon Institute, this is the Russia file. I am Maxim Trudolubov. Sputnik V, Russia developed COVID-19 vaccine, is not just a scientific achievement. With it, Russia is enjoying a golden moment in terms of its vaccine diplomacy. Despite the initial distrust, some of it still continuing, dozens of countries, more than 40 that this program is being recorded, have granted Sputnik V emergency use authorization. What exactly is special about this vaccine? Will Russia be able to keep its leadership and why? Given its international success, Russia is falling behind with its domestic vaccination campaign. Joining me to discuss all this and more, Olga Dobrovidova and Judy Twig. Olga Dobrovidova is one of Russia's leading science and environment journalists. She's been covering science for Russia's and the world's most important publications, including Stat and Nature. She was a Knight Science Journalism Fellow in 2015. Judy Twigg is a professor of political science at Virginia Commonwealth University, where she teaches courses on global health, international political economy, and Russian politics. So let's start with science. We'll try and uh, discuss a number of issues that by now have to do with this entire project of the Russian vaccine, which is by now a very well-known story, also from the medical scientific side and from the political side. And uh, what's interesting to me, I think, is to discuss those in connection, because both uh, sides matter. But uh, we'll probably start with the medical uh, scientific part of the story. Olga, we'll start with you. What kind of an achievement is this? What does it tell us about the state of the relevant Russian scientific community and uh, the facilities and the science itself? I would say that's certainly an achievement in a sense that Russian scientists were also able to produce a functioning vaccine platform in less than a year, essentially. They were using something they had already developed earlier. They were using a platform that they had used for Ebola vaccines before. I wish it wouldn't be undermined so much by the low level of trust that uh, everyone kind of had with the Russian data and the subversion of the process for registration that happened essentially when it was registered before any data was published on the trials. So yeah, I mean, it's a solid achievement. And I guess it tells you that when push comes to shove, as they say, the Russian science can still produce functioning products. I wish, again, it didn't take that much effort and a pandemic to prove this. But how does it compare to the other vaccines? The first Russian vaccine, the Sputnik V vaccine, is what's called an adenovirus vaccine. It's using a viral vector to deliver the material that the immune system is going to respond to. That platform hasn't been tested extensively, but there is some limited evidence that it works, which is, I guess, also true for the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer-BioNTech one and the Moderna one. I don't think that there's a lot of evidence, too. The second Russian vaccine, the one that comes from Vector in Novosibirsk, is a bit different. It's a peptide vaccine. It essentially produces viral peptides for the immune system to respond. It's also not that well tested. And the third vaccine that's come, just coming to market in late March, I guess, is a traditional kind of vaccine where the virus itself is attenuated, right? It's, it's essentially almost killed to make it useful for the immune system to learn, to adapt to it and to defend against it, but it's not harmful at all, right? So the platforms are different. They're not, again, that not that well tested, but that's the reality we have to live in now, right? And I guess it's also what it takes to develop a vaccine so quickly, right? You have to take certain risks when it comes to approaches that are relatively new to the market. Thank you, Olga. Judy, what is the story of the acceptance, let's say, start with the scientific community's acceptance of the Russian effort? How did it look from your side? 
Well, there was some initial skepticism because the Sputnik V vaccine was formally approved back in August before it had even entered large-scale clinical trials. And that's putting the cart before the horse. That's making promises that you're not sure you can keep. That's before you've had the number of participants in a controlled trial to be absolutely certain that there aren't going to be safety issues and that you're going to have the level of efficacy that you'd like to see. So this was a gamble on Russia's part to approve the vaccine, especially to approve it with such fanfare, deliberately to call attention you know, to this landmark event, putting Russia on the map as the first in the world to launch a vaccine against the coronavirus. There was a lot of reputational and public health risk involved in that gamble. But you know, as we've seen, it's paid off. And uh, as Olga described, it's a scientific achievement, not just because of the development of a successful vaccine in under a year, that's extraordinary. This use of the human adenovirus as the platform is something that we've seen before. But Olga, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a fairly clever design in that the two doses of the vaccine are different from one another so that the Sputnik V vaccine kind of delivers the immune system a one-two punch. It doesn't give the body a chance to adjust or, or develop immunity to the first one as it comes in with the second. So it, it's a pretty clever design. Yeah, it is, certainly. Judy, what do you think about this campaign that was associated with the vaccine? I mean, looking from here, it did sound like the hasty campaign marketing the vaccine and uh, essentially portraying it as a success of the Russian science, which is all very fine. But the character of the campaign sort of undermined, that was my impression, undermined the initial trust in the project because it looked too politicized. First, there's the idea that there were premature, exaggerated claims about what this vaccine would be able to do from the very beginning. They were making claims about efficacy and safety before they had the data to back those claims. And they did so with such a slick public relations campaign. If you think back to what happened on August 11th of last year, you know they announced registration of the vaccine, and then they had this beautifully designed website ready to roll, you know, push the button to launch that website the moment that they announced the registration. And compared to other Russian public sector websites, this one was very nicely done. It launched in seven languages, clearly intended for a global audience as well as a Russian domestic audience. And when the website was first launched, there was a deliberate lag built into how it loaded so that it took a couple of seconds for the full website to come up on your screen so that all you saw was this little button in the middle of the screen that told you to turn your volume up all the way before you push the button. And then when you push the button, you heard the beeps that we heard from space back in 1957 from the Soviet Sputnik satellite. So this is deliberately intended to evoke those memories of Russian great power, scientific and technological giant, you know, first in the world achievement, definitely intended to put Russia back on the map again as a legitimate scientific, technological, political great power. That all is a legitimate marketing campaign, but in the context of the premature claims about what this vaccine can do, there were many people both inside Russia and and in the rest of the world who just looked at that and said, oh, there they go again, um, you know, making these premature claims about scientific achievements coming out of their, uh, you know, not just biomedical, but overall scientific community. 
Yeah, so they uh, apparently overdid it a little bit, right? But in the end, what do you think did it work? I mean, how does it look now? Everything's clear. People's memories, I think, are short in the middle of a once-in-a-century global pandemic crisis. My guess is that a year from now, there may not be many people or many countries who remember or care so much where they got their vaccines from as long as they got vaccines and were able to emerge from this crisis. But in the immediate sense, I think it did work. I think that the gamble paid off. We had the article in The Lancet, you know, one of the finest peer-reviewed medical journals in the world, that even though there are still a few detractors around the margins. There was some controversy there, was it? There was some about the completeness of the analysis and the quality of the data and the extent to which the, the full raw data have been presented. Those conversations are still ongoing. But by and large, I think the vast majority of scientists and you know non-science observers are convinced that Sputnik V is indeed a safe, effective vaccine. If I had access to it, I would take it today to get a shot at, at having a, a good, safe, effective vaccine. But I think there's another thing going on here politically. I think that Russia was able to enter this space so successfully so early because the space was available. Even pre-COVID, if you look at the way President Trump, with his America first attitude toward the rest of the world, had withdrawn from global health activity. He had pulled the United States out of the World Health Organization. He had stepped back from American commitments in many other global health areas. And then when the COVID pandemic started, President Trump made it very clear that he was going to take care of people within American borders and not be much concerned with what happened in the rest of the world. Um, the United States, Western Europe, Canada, a couple of others bought up all of the available Western developed vaccines very early through these pre-purchase agreements where all of these Western countries bought enough vaccine ahead of the game to vaccinate their people two, three. Canada has enough to vaccinate all its people five times over. And so there's this aura of disconnect and, and selfishness from the United States and the other Western countries, that's a vacuum in the global health space that Russia, and I think we should note China, were also very happy to fill. Um, you know, Russia was given an opportunity here that it took. If we're talking about the delivery part of the story, so where Russia is, Olga, maybe you can clarify this. How does Russia stand in terms of a power that can deliver the vaccines, well, I mean, as fast as possible to as many people as possible? Well, I guess that's the interesting part of the story, because as for production capacity, there have been reports about some problems with starting it up, and essentially then scaling it up to ensure enough production for everyone. But if you look at the graphs, for instance, on our world in data, when it comes to availability of the vaccines to the Russian nationals, it's still quite low. I think only 3% of the population has received at least one dose, and less than 1% has been vac fully vaccinated, right? So I guess this is the curious part about that campaign that Judy mentioned. It was very successful, very slick internationally, but I wish the Russian government made as much effort to actually promote the vaccine inside the country as they did internationally, because the trust in the vaccine is quite low, I think, and it's getting lower. Independent polling suggests that in December 2020, I think there was about 40% who were ready to get vaccinated. Now it's 30%. Wow, I didn't realize. So, that. I mean, originally, I remember the concerns were about the ability, whether Russia has enough facilities to actually produce the vaccine. So basically, the main issue is trust. 
isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the demand is just not there yet for any capacity issues to kick in. I guess anyone who wants to get vaccinated now can do so just simply because there's not enough demand for But what's to it, what, what is this? What is this? And how does this compare to other countries in terms of the trust issues? I would have to say that the Russian government really doesn't use the propaganda machine it has built inside the country to promote vaccination. And it stretches all the way from very little transparency in the way it was developed and produced and tested. There's very little data on how many doses were actually distributed, publicly available. So it's it's a not very transparent process. And then it goes all the way up to President Putin not, you know, announcing that Yeah, I was going to mention that. It's unclear, right? Yeah, we have no information on whether he has been vaccinated. So that, of course, would have been a huge step for an audience that supports him. Judy, do we have a worldwide picture on how this trust issue uh, looks in different countries? Are there marked differences between different societies, cultures, uh, countries in terms of how? Do, I, I understand that there are countries, even highly advanced countries in Europe, including Germany, where trust is unexpectedly low. So what's the picture? Vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal are big issues everywhere. And as you indicate, Max, it varies from country to country, culture to culture. You know, the reasons, the dynamics, what kinds of communications instruments, persuasive instruments we can use to convince people to, you know, usually we're talking about people getting their kids vaccinated. Now we're talking about getting everyone vaccinated with COVID. In Russia, the numbers are unusually high. And I think there are a few things happening. One is that Russia has a disproportionate proportionately large number of COVID deniers, people who just aren't willing to entertain the idea of being vaccinated because they don't think the pandemic is a real thing at all. So they're distrustful of the basic premise behind you know, the idea that we're in some kind of epidemic crisis. Then there is another group who are distrustful of vaccinations in general. They don't want to get the COVID vaccine, but they also don't want to get diphtheria, tetanus, polio, you know, any vaccines at all, because they're concerned about the safety, the side effects. You know, Bill Gates is implanting computer chips into all of us through the vaccines he's distributing around the world, conspiracy theory type things. Then there's another subset of people who are fine with vaccines vaccines, but they specifically distrust Russia's COVID vaccines. And so possibly they'd be vaccinated if they had access to one of the Western vaccines. So it's a lot of different groups. And I was struck by Olga's comment a minute ago that Russia hasn't yet used its vast state communications machinery to push the idea of getting vaccinated. My impression is that Sputnik V and the success of this specific vaccine has been all over the media. They're just not pushing it correctly. They're not pushing the idea of getting vaccinated in general. Instead, the whole campaign focuses on Russia's great achievement with this one specific product. How do you think this current campaign compares to previous large worldwide campaigns in terms of I mean, there are well-known cases previously in world history where certain diseases were completely eradicated, as I understand it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Smallpox was one of the examples, right? When international community was successful to eventually cover the entire world population and uh, get rid of this particular disease. And obviously, this requires an incredible level of trust and uh, a sort of pushiness in terms of from the side of the governments and uh, international organizations, World Health Organization. So what happened? In what time do we live in, in the sense that the vaccines apparently met with less trust 
today in 21st century than 50, 40 years ago? Well, the campaign to eradicate smallpox, and smallpox is, is the only human infectious disease that has been completely eradicated from the planet. That required everyone, literally everyone, to be vaccinated. It required, at the height of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, it required competition from everyone on the planet. And the United States and the Soviet Union worked brilliantly together in that campaign through the auspices of the World Health Organization. And it required, you know, literally door-to-door village-to-village vaccination campaigns in the most remote corners of the world in order for smallpox to be eradicated successfully. We live now in a time of such international mistrust, such mistrust within our societies. We live in a time when social media allows that mistrust to be amplified through misinformation, deliberate disinformation. Speaking of my own country, I know we live in a time in which any kind of requirement to be vaccinated is looked in many circles as an unacceptable infringement on personal liberty and freedom, it's impossible to imagine that kind of universal vaccination campaign now. We're going to have to rely on uh, herd immunity um, kicking in at lower levels of vaccination than 100%. And we're going to have to rely on very clever, well-crafted communications and persuasion campaigns to convince people to get these vaccines. Olga, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would also say that I think now is the interesting and tricky part when it comes to vaccine development, because we've kind of hit the finish line in terms of creating various vaccine platforms. But now we have to pull the data. We have to look at how they interact with each other. And of course, we have to look at new variants of the coronavirus that have been appearing all over the world. And it's a second act of this story, I guess, which is arguably even trickier and and more complicated and more complex. And this requires international cooperation, again, on a scale that's, I guess, precedented, but would be really hard to achieve these days. And I would agree with Judy. I would say that the scientists have done their job. Now it's the science communicator's job to get everyone on board with using what the scientists have delivered. How does the international competition, as it were, look right now in terms of people getting vaccinated? I understand Israel is among the world's leaders right now. Who are the rest? How does it look now? In terms of the percentage of people vaccinated compared to the percentage of people who have had the virus, in other words, the vaccine to caseload ratio, as you said, Israel is far and away the the best performer. They had the benefit of already having had a comprehensive national health database in place that they could work from. So they had an administrative tool that was ready to go to make a successful vaccination campaign happen. The United Arab Emirates, has been highly successful. So has UK, the United States, actually, for all of our fumbling out of the gate. uh, We've now ramped up vaccination under the Biden administration to the point where we look uh, like we're doing okay. Western Europe, not so good. Russia, as Olga said, not so good. Um, There aren't any other countries that are up at the top of the line here. So basically, is this, let's say, the main reasons are not the capacities, not the production manufacturing capacity, but essentially trust. Yeah, just to be clear, Russia is a situation where supply exceeds demand right now. Pretty much everywhere else in the world, it's the reverse of that. 
where, at least for the time being, demand still greatly exceeds supply. So everywhere else in the world, we haven't yet run into the situation where we're needing to persuade more people to get vaccines because we haven't yet covered the number of people who are very much wanting and anxious to get their vaccines. And the challenge here is, you know, just ramping up production. You know, vaccines aren't necessarily easy things to make. And so it it takes time to ramp up production. One very important thing that happened just this past week is that Merck, the pharmaceutical corporation Merck, which did not succeed in its own vaccine development, was persuaded by the Biden administration to start production of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The J&J vaccine is relatively inexpensive. It's one dose. It does not require super cold refrigeration. And so the J&J vaccine is a great tool globally. And to have Merck now step in and ramp up production means we're going to start to see an acceleration of availability of vaccines globally. So that's some very good news. What I think the global health community is rightly concerned about now are inequities that, again, you have the situation where the rich countries got themselves covered early on through these pre-purchase agreements. And then there's this global facility through WHO, COVAX, the COVAX vaccine facility, which is designed to cover low and middle income countries with 20 percent of their populations vaccinated through donations that have come from rich countries. And it was a fairly clever design of the facility. The rich countries were incentivized to invest in this COVAX facility early on because it got them access to the COVAX basket of vaccines, right? If you think about what the situation was six, seven, eight months ago, we didn't know which vaccines were going to work and which ones weren't. And so COVAX put together a basket of vaccines and rich countries were incentivized to buy into it so that they might get access to a couple that would work. So that all the vaccines that are available go into this basket. COVAX is buying a basket of vaccines, some of which will be available to the rich countries that have made the investments in COVAX, most of which will be donated to poor countries. And so COVAX at one point, a couple of months ago, looked like it might be dead in the water because the United States was not participating or contributing under the Trump administration. Contributions from some of the other rich countries were anemic, you know, that the pledges were coming in slow. And once the Biden administration came in, that was one of the first things it fixed. Um, It pledged $2 billion to COVAX right off the bat with a promise of $2 billion more over the next, I think, two years if other countries match. And so COVAX, has been somewhat reinvigorated by the Biden administration. And we've started to see the first deliveries of vaccine through COVAX just last week. I think 400,000 doses went to Ghana, I think. Another few hundred thousand doses went to Cote d'Ivoire. We're starting to see deliveries into some places in Central Asia, um, even into Eastern Europe. And so we'll address, I think, some of that perception of inequity through the COVAX facility. But it's still hard to escape the idea that in this pandemic, the rich countries are getting what they need first and the poor countries are getting what's left over later. And this is a repetition of a pattern that we've seen time and time again in global health. If you think back to the HIV AIDS pandemic, for example, when we first developed antiretroviral medications for HIV AIDS, United States, Western Europe got them first. Millions of people who were dying in sub-Saharan Africa got them years later. Incidentally, Russia is not a part of COVAX, as far as I know. It hasn't joined. And I think the Russian Direct Investment Fund CEO said that they are in talks with WHO about this, but they prefer to go their own way. They prefer to talk to countries directly without the intermediaries, I guess. Oh, I didn't realize that. So basically, Russia does use Sputnik V as a political response. 
part of its uh, vaccine politic, right? But it clearly prefers to do it not on a multilateral basis, right? On a bilateral basis. By the way, Olga, how many countries do we know by now engaged or bought uh, Russia's the technology? I think... I've heard the number 40 that have either secured the, uh, the supplies or in negotiations. And I think the most important members of this group are the two European countries. I think it's Hungary and the Czech Republic, right? The ones that have tried to secure their supplies before the European Medicines Agency actually approves the vaccine for its use in the EU. Certainly, these are the countries that Russia would like to point to when it comes to its vaccine diplomacy. So basically, it's a big success, right? And I think that's the concern that other countries might have with Russia filling this vacuum quite successfully indeed, yeah. I would be happier about this if it weren't for for the dismal state of the vaccination campaign inside Russia. Because apparently Russians are not the ones who benefit from this incredible scientific result. Yeah, that's amazing, actually. But what do you think, what kind of world is emerging out of this entire story? It's uh, protracting, it's clearly getting longer than everyone's expected last year at least. What kind of world in terms of the inequities, this success-failure kind of picture, who is emerging as leaders who are not so successful? Is there a way of presenting a general picture of where we are now with this pandemic and the vaccine? First of all, I think that the observation that Russia's gamble has paid off, that Russia's policy here, the diplomatic use of of Sputnik has been a success. I think that's true right now. I think it's also reasonable to ask whether Russia's sort of golden moment in terms of vaccine diplomacy is right now, but that window may be starting slowly to close as, you know, the Biden administration becomes more aggressive with multilateral and bilateral interventions. We start to see the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, some of the other multilateral development banks get more active in vaccines. Russia's not the only game in town anymore. And I think that the monopoly on vaccine diplomacy is shrinking. That vacuum is shrinking. In terms of what kind of world we're moving into with this, that's such a great question. I mean, if you look back over centuries of world history, global pandemics tend to produce political and social unheaval pretty effectively and efficiently, right? In relatively short order, either during or post-pandemic, going all the way back to the Black Plague in the 1300s, up through the Spanish flu in, in 1918. And that stems, as you said, through issues of enhanced real and perceived inequality, people's expectations about how governments cope with the epidemic are disappointed. People aren't satisfied with the competence of their leaders in in delivering the most basic public safety services, all kinds of dynamics through which pandemics tend to have an impact on political and social dynamics. And I think right now the inequity dimension is the one that really comes to the fore in combination with the competence dimension, where I think there are many people around the world who have been shocked at the lack of effective leadership in their countries. I think that's going to be an important issue moving forward. Olga, anything? I think the profound changes that have happened over the last year and this year and continue to happen, the way we've essentially abandoned peer review for a while and decided to do it as we go along, essentially share the results. This has been, I would say, good enough 
not without its uh, blunders, but still the speed of the exchange of information has been tremendous. And the fact that scientists have been working on AI tools to help them read all the papers that are being produced right now is, I think, telling that symbol of this time that we just, in a matter of a year, we've produced so much knowledge on something that's been completely unknown just the year before. I think I would be happy if the level of cooperation also among scientists would stay this high, because I think it was with the BioNTech and uh, Pfizer vaccine that they started development literally days after the first sequence was published. And this was unimaginable earlier in our history, the kind of cooperation, the kind of sharing data. And the questions that remain is how this all started, right? What was the source? What animal was the source of this pathogen? And Judy mentioned earlier pandemics. There will be ones in the future too. And there was an impressive a quote, I think, from one of the US scientists who spoke about a new coronavirus pandemic in 2003 when SARS first emerged. He said his worry is a new coronavirus pandemic. And now we're here in 2021 living just through that. So obviously there will be more. And I guess the good takeaway from this would be more preparedness uh, and more investment in preparedness, really, because this investment always spikes immediately after the pandemic. Immediately after the flu outbreak or SARS or MERS, there's a spike in investment. But then, since the memory is quite short, the governments tend to cut the spending. And I think this might be the lesson that sticks ultimately, just because the damage was so significant and the impact was so significant in terms of not just economic damage, but human lives too. Well, thank you. That's fascinating. Actually, it's fascinating to watch to what extent the state of science is getting higher and uh, the state of scientific cooperation is at an incredible unseen previously level. But at the same time, we live in a society which is so mistrustful of science at the same time. It's really ironic. It's something that I guess deserves to be thought through and understood better, I guess. Thank you, Olga, Judy, thanks so much. This um, has been a fascinating conversation. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.